John chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. And I want to kind of give you uh, an update on where we are. So, so uh, before we, uh, we, we did a series on the Bible back in uh, the fall. And then after that, we did a, a season of Advent. We explored that. This uh, last few weeks, we've been exploring vision. And then last week, Pastor Don got us back into the Gospel of John. We were doing, uh, focusing on the Gospel of John as we headed up towards the fall. And then uh, we took a break to do that series in the Bible. But we're back in the Gospel of John now. And so I just want to kind of give us uh, an overview, get us up to speed with where we are in John's gospel. So uh, in John chapter 11, Lazarus, he's raised from the dead, right? It's an amazing thing. Everybody is marveling at what Jesus was able to accomplish. And then Mary, Lazarus's sister, uh, we saw uh, Pastor Don showed us this passage last week. Uh, Mary brings this uh, jar of perfume, a uh, vial of perfume, and, and lays it at Jesus's feet, anoints Jesus for his burial. And uh, this was a really significant act. That vial was worth a year wages, right? It was uh, kind of laying all that down in worship. And everybody's looking at Mary going, man, she crazy. Like, how could she just lay that out like that? That's a lot of money. We could use it for so many other things, but she did it to anoint Jesus for his death. And then we get into this moment, uh, and we haven't gone over this. We're going to look at it a little bit this morning, where, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and it's the triumphal entry. Uh, he's coming in, and people are waving prom, palm branches and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. We're glad that Jesus is here. He's our Messiah. Let him be our King. So, uh, so you know, that's kind of how, where we're at right now. Um, and what we're going to do today is actually, we're going to be covering significant chunk of scripture. I don't know if you looked, but like we're looking at John, basically John 12 through the middle of John 14. And that means that we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So I want to give you a disclaimer. And this is just a general rule for when I'm up here. I cannot say everything there is to say about a particular passage, right? It's, it's impossible for any preacher to say anything there is to say, uh, and so, or everything that there is to say. And so to cover every detail of this passage, we would, we would be here for hours. And I know you all don't want to be here for hours. Uh, so I know. <laughs> don't try me, Gina. I can go for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, so, so today we are covering a large portion of scripture, but the purpose is actually, so, so there are a few different ways you can go. You can, you can look at a small portion of scripture and try to understand every detail, but then when you take larger portions of scripture, what it helps you to do is understand some of the bigger ideas that the author is going for. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to understand some of the bigger ideas that John is going for as he wrote these passages down for us. So let me set the stage. The momentum of Jesus's ministry has been building at a rapid pace. It's now become incredibly dangerous for him to approach Judea and Jerusalem, especially like because he's made the power brokers in those places very upset, right? They want to kill him. They want to arrest him. They want to find any way they can to stop the momentum that has been building with them and, and add to that, that he has kind of refused to mobilize an army and establish a leadership structure, which means uh, there are a lot of people who want Jesus to be king. 
There are a lot of people who want to make him, like want him to become a general, a military general, so that they can overthrow Rome and get them out of Jerusalem so that they can reclaim Jerusalem for themselves. But Jesus refuses to establish any of that structure. He won't do it. Which means that as he goes into this very dangerous place, Judea and Jerusalem, he has no formal kind of protection. There's nobody there uh, that's going to stop anybody who tries to come after him. Okay, so, so we see that. And then his influence keeps growing, right? You get the raising of Lazarus. It actually telling us after Lazarus is raised that many people believed in Jesus. That uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were all very wealthy and likely pretty well known in the area. And so people hear that Lazarus is raised from the dead. And now there, even though they didn't get to see it, they hear about it. So word is spreading about this. And so... So these people, the people who are there as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they think Jesus is their guy. He is king. And, and, and so uh, they, they come, they're, they're in Jerusalem. After Mary pours out the, the perfume at Jesus' feet, anoints him, kind of sets all of this aside, does something crazy that everybody thinks, how could she pour that out? She must be crazy. That's a waste. But for her, it was an easy decision, right? We looked at that, that, that it was easy for her to lay love down at Jesus' feet because of the love that he had shed on her and her family. So after that, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's what we know as Palm Sunday. And then in verse 12 of chapter 12, it says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So we have the crowd. The crowd is presented to us, and they are proclaiming the reality of Jesus' kingship, that he is the king of Israel, and he has come. Now, the crowd is a significant character for us in this story. And here, what they're doing is they are fulfilling prophecy. They declare the reality of his, that he is a ruler, that he is a king, even while they don't really recognize the significance of what they're saying. They think he's the king who has come to help them overthrow Rome, and they're kind of excited about that. And so they say, Hosanna, which means save now. They're calling on Jesus, save us now. Set up your kingdom, get Rome out of here. And it would appear, as they say this, that they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's what would appear to be the case. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So, so momentum has been building. We see first Lazarus, then we see Mary and the word traveling of her pouring out this vial at Jesus' feet. Then you have this triumphal entry. And so, so as uh, kind of word has been traveling, momentum has been building, crowds have been gathering in greater and greater numbers, that momentum brings us to a point where the genuineness of faith is brought to the forefront of the conversation. The genuineness of faith is brought to the forefront of the conversation. So this is what I mean by the genuineness of faith. You might say that the entirety of John's gospel is actually about the genuineness of faith. In fact, John says that all the words that he wrote down, he wrote them so that you might believe. You who reads these words, I've written these down so that you might believe. Have faith. Come to faith. And so the way that he tells his story 
leaves us with two impressions. This whole story, the whole gospel, the way that he tells it leaves us with two impressions. Number one, that people can appear to believe without their belief being genuine. It's the first impression that it leaves us with. And the second is people that you wouldn't expect to have belief actually have a very deep, genuine belief. Right? So, so illustrating this principle, very early on in the gospel, Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is, what does this mean? You're talking about being born again and coming to believe. What are you talking about? And, and Jesus says this in John 3, 8. He says, you know what? The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right? That, that the Spirit is just up to something. And the people that we wouldn't expect to believe, they believe. And the people that we think are probably believing, it turns out that they're not actually believing. Right? So here in chapter 12, because of the momentum that's been building, it, it kind of brings this issue of genuine faith to the forefront because uh, we're in Jesus' last week. And there are a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of uh, uh, people who are going to fall in different columns as those decisions are made. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to consider four characters in John's story and examine Jesus's perspective on the genuineness of their faith. So character one, character one of the Greeks. The Greeks in John 12, verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So there are some Greeks who apparently are beginning to believe in the Jewish God, uh, but they're not fully associated with Judaism, right? So, so they're God-fearers is what they're referred to as, but they're here in Jerusalem, and they're firmly not Jewish. It's clear that they're not Jewish. And verse 23, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is, this is a turning point for us because up to this point, the, the question has always been about the Jews, Jesus' relationship to the Jews. What are the Jews here to believe? What do they need to understand? But now the gospel has kind of turned our focus and shown us an additional group of people outside of the Jews, right? We're now looking at the Greeks, the nations, right? And so uh, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about glory, but when he's talking about the Son of Man being glorified, The Old Testament, whenever it talks about the Messiah connected to God's glory, the next thing that you always read is that the nations are coming to believe, right? The nations are being drawn back to God. And so we have here the the Greeks included in this story. And Jesus says, you know what? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But If it dies, it bears much fruit. So this is a parable about his death. He's giving these Greek people a a parable about his death. uh, And there are implications of that death that come after it. So so Jesus' understanding is that his death, when I die, it will bring about much fruit. In fact, let's talk about the fruit, the implications of the fruit. Fruit that goes beyond the boundaries of the Jewish nation fruit that goes out to all nations, right? So when he sees these Greeks, he makes this instant connection to the kind of fruit that's going to come as a result of his death. There's going to be a harvest. So what does that harvest look like? Well, 
Jesus is going to describe what that harvest looks like. So, so what he's done is he's uh, transferred, he's taken us into this very short parable, but now, now he's going to explain the implications of the parable. What does the harvest look like? Verse 25, whoever loses his life, or sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, before, when Jesus has talked about eternal life, what has he said? What has he said is like the way to eternal life. He says, believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in the Son of God. Believe in me and find eternal life. Here, Jesus appears to say something different about eternal life than what he had previously said. But it's not different than what he was already saying. He is simply making explicit to these Greek people what he means when he has called the Jews to believe in him. He's making explicit what he means when he says the word believe. John's helping us as he writes these words for Jesus down. He's helping us to see that Jesus is actually overtly clarifying the reality of belief to the Greeks. But what he clarifies brings this issue of the genuineness of faith to the forefront for us. It's as if John, John is kind of including this conversation with the Greeks to tell us what Jesus thinks that real faith, real belief, real trust in Jesus looks like. So what does he say? He says three things. Jesus says three things. Hate your life in this world, number one. Number two, serve me. Number three, follow me. Hate your life in this world, serve me, and follow me. And then he said, that's eternal life. That's reward from the Father. I become of greater value to you than the things of the world are to you. Hate the world. Serve me. Follow me. Because that's what you're saying when you say the word, I believe. When you say, I trust, that I have faith. All of these words, they all get at the same idea. Right? The call to hate the world is not a call to despair or not even a call to hate your neighbors. It's not a, a, a call of a kind of disposition of your heart constantly towards the world. It's an issue of comparison, right? What place does he take in your heart in comparison to the world? Because if you love him, he's saying the kind of belief that I'm talking about is that you would love me to the extent that it looks like you hate the world in comparison to your love to me. So he says, trust me, right? This is what he's talking about with belief and trust and faith, right? All of this. Trust me to the point that when it's me or the world, you honor me. Trust me to the point that when it's serving me or building your career, I win. Trust me to the point that when it's me or your reputation, I'm what's most valuable to you. Trust me to the point that when it's my ideas or your ideas, you choose my ideas, right? Right? So, so this, this led me to think about the idea of lines, right? Typically, we want Jesus' benefits on our terms, right? We say, Jesus, thank you so much. 
I'll believe you to this point, to this line. Not past that line, but I'll believe you up to this line, right? I, I, I appreciate your benefits and I'll accept them as long as I get them up to this line, but don't ask me to go over the line, right? So I'll believe you to this point and no further. So what's on the other side of that line for you? What's your no further? Do you have a line that you're not willing to cross? Because, uh, I mean, we've been saying this over the last few weeks, right? We're going to change our name to Renovation Church come April. And one of the things that we've been saying is that uh, we are all stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new, right? We're stories that God is telling to the world around us. So if that's true, and you say to Jesus, I'll go this far, but no further, what you're saying is, I won't allow you to make that new, right? I'll go this far, but no further. So John is is showing us what he's doing. He's just showing us Jesus's definition of genuine faith. And this is genuine faith. It is a willingness to cross the line in service to Jesus. Genuine faith is a willingness to cross the line in service to Jesus. So last week, Pastor Don got up here and preached. Who did we watch cross the line in service to Jesus? We watched Mary. We watched Mary cross the line. So for everybody else, what's on the other side of that line? Right? Money, value, that could have been so much more effectively used in their minds. But for Mary, the line didn't exist, right? Faith, for her faith, belief, and trust was pouring it all out to anoint Jesus for his death. Uh, another story that I think of often because it's just so crystal clear. Pastor Don often uh, shares his conversion story with us and, and kind of the conversation that he had with God in that process. He says, uh, basically, God brought me to this point. I had to, to say, you are God and I am not. And what that means is that when you and I disagree, you win. Right? He tells that story all the time. And it just is so crystal clear because what's on the other side of the line? It's, usually, it's like me needing my own ideas to be the right ideas, right? So, so, so when I come to Jesus, what that means is I'm willing to say, you know what? My ideas, they're not right. Your ideas are the right ideas. When we disagree, you win. I'm right. I'll seek to align my understanding and actions with your ideas. So Jesus, what he does, he actually provides this marvelous benefit to these Greeks who don't really have a lot of context for what's been going on. He says pretty clearly, this is what faith looks like. This is it right here. Let me tell you what it's like. And so then from this point, because this really kind of serves as a marker for us, we get to see the principle that he introduced here illustrated in other characters throughout the story as the gospel continues. So, So from this point, we then observe three other characters in the story, all who have been described in the book at one point or another, as actually having believed, right? The, the words are used in some form or another in relation to all of the characters that we're about to examine as they believed, right? And what that tells us is that they could have appeared to believe, but their belief was not genuine. So Jesus, is in, in his interaction with the first character, it shows us what he thinks genuine faith looks like. The next three characters come to us as illustrations. So character number two for us is the crowds, the crowds. John 12, 27. This is right after he said what he said to the Greeks. He said, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He says this, and all of these people are still standing there. Right? Like they're, they're just all gathered around. And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. All these people have been celebrating, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. We're so glad you're here. He says, my soul is troubled. Why? 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 For what purpose have I come here? Well, I need to remember that my purpose is, Father, for your name to be glorified. And then as he says it, as he finishes the words, a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is so, so, so right after he speaks, right after he speaks with the Greeks, he has this kind of moment of transparency. His soul is troubled. And then for everyone to hear, this voice from heaven speaks. And then in verse 29, it says this, the crowd stood there and heard it. They, they heard what was said. It wasn't just something for Jesus to hear. And some of them said it had thundered, right? This is the, they probably couldn't discern all of the words and what the implication was, but they heard something really loud and unexpected. And others said, An angel has spoken to him. The point is, everybody recognizes something miraculous just took place. But there's a little bit of confusion, a little bit of disagreement. So Jesus answered, this is what he said. He said, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. He knows what, I know what I need to know from the Father. This was not spoken for me spoken for you, right? Anytime, the, the, the voice, so there's this voice, there's the miracles that Jesus has performed, there's the casting out of demons, there's the healings that we've seen. It's kind of, it's kind of like summing up all of it. You know what? They don't help me. They're not about me. They're meant to show you something, to help you understand something. He's saying the voice itself, it came to show this. And then he goes on in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So uh, anytime Jesus has spoken about glorifying the Father or being glorified or being lifted up, he's really, uh, in, in John's gospel especially, he's referencing two things. He's referencing his death and subsequent resurrection. And he's referencing the recognition of him as king, as Messiah. So both of those things are what he's referring to when he says lifted up, glorified. That's what he's referred to. He's saying by my death, and then he says this thing about all people. Remember, we've, we've broken the boundaries now. We've turned our attention outward beyond the Jewish nation. He said, by my death, people from every nation will come to believe in me. That's appropriate, right? He just spoke to the Greeks about what he has to say. He says this other little thing about uh, Satan, how Satan's going to be dethroned, that he will no longer hold sway over all the nations, but that there will be a different king for the nations to follow. And now, now he's talking about this. He's kind of said the same thing enough times for the crowd to be able to begin to piece, piece together what he's saying. They don't get it, and they don't get it, and they don't get it. But once you say something enough times, they start to, to figure out what you're trying to say. And so they know that when he says this word, lifted up from the earth, they know that he has in his mind an idea about his death. They know that he's talking about dying. And this, is, this means that he's saying... 
a significant number of things that do not compute with how every, everybody understands the Messiah. They just don't get it. How could a Messiah who is supposed to come and set up his rule and drive out our enemies and make our nation, the nation that draws all nations to God, like how could somebody who's supposed to do that die? It does not make sense to us. So verse 34, the crowd answer him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now, I just ask you a question. If you see a guy raise people from the dead, um, you see a guy uh, perform many miracles. You see him easily cast out demons. You witness these things with your eyes. And then in the moment, just before you open your mouth, he is talking and a voice booms from heaven. And you know that it's a miracle. If you see all of those things, are you inclined to argue with that person? Some people are. That's exactly right. Some people are. So the crowd answered him, well, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? There's this litany of questions that they're putting in front of him. And here what they're doing is they're, they're kind of combining a number of things that Jesus has said. And instead of saying to the miracle worker, we don't understand, help us. They say, you can't be right about that because we know that we're right. And when we disagree, we win. How can you say these things, Jesus? What's their line? What, what's on the other side of their line? Well, their line is what they think they know. Right? They say, I'm not willing to forsake what I think I know and replace it with what you tell me is truth. I'm not willing to do it. I won't cross that line. So, so Jesus, he, he gives them a bit of a warning about this disposition, right? And then he ends that warning with this. It says in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. One more time, he gives them yet another invitation to believe. He gives them another invitation. And then, and then we get some commentary on why they're not believing. John tells us that their unbelief is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, that their eyes have been blinded. But then he, he sums it up with this to help us really understand what's happening. In verse 42, he says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. The authorities are amongst the crowd. They're a smaller subsection of the crowd. So many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What does this tell us? It shows us where the line is. It shows us what's on the other side of the line. There are people in the crowd, even Pharisees, who firmly believe that Jesus is king. They they believe that everything he speaks is true. But that alone is not enough. How do we know? Because they knew that if they confessed Jesus, they would lose something. They would lose their place in the synagogue. They would lose the status that they gained. So, uh, principle here to observe. Sometimes the line is what we know. Most times, 
the line is what we love. Sometimes the line is what we know. Most times the line is what we love. Jesus can be right and true all he wants. But no matter how right and true he is, I love my career too much. I love my social status too much. I love my safety and security too much. I love the world too much. And so the crowds show us both of these dispositions of things on the other side of the line. Character three, Judas. A few days after this entry into Jerusalem before Passover starts, Jesus is meeting with his disciples. He has a meeting, uh, a meal that he shares together with them. And, uh, and chapters 13 through 17 bring that meal into view for us. Some of the most valuable and intimate words shared between Jesus and his disciples, they occur here. And we also witness the betrayal of Judas to Jesus here. Judas If you went all the way back to John chapter 2, you would see the disciples at the wedding in Cana, and you would see Jesus performing a miracle uh, of turning the water into wine. And at that moment in John chapter 2 is where we are told his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Judas would be included in that group. His disciples believed in him. But here we see something different. John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So we see something about the disposition of Judas's heart here. And then in verse 4 it goes on. He laid aside his outer garments... And taking a towel, this is Jesus, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is all one thought. That Judas was about to betray him. And Judas tied his towel around his waist and got down so that he could wash everyone's feet, including Judas, whom Satan had already entered. He's showing us two things, John is. He's showing us, number one, the unbelief of Judas. And he's showing us, number two, the persistent love of Jesus. In fact, while we might be inclined to look at uh, all of chapter 13 as kind of an introduction to this upper room interaction, chapter 13 is really intentionally zooming us in on the relationship between Jesus and Judas. And John is kind of once more illustrating to us principles about belief. Verse 21. So so Jesus shares words about why he's washing their feet. What is the purpose? uh, What he has come to accomplish? And then it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So they're they're kind of going back and forth. They don't know who he's talking about or what he's talking about. They all started wondering, and and John, the guy who wrote this down for us, John actually, it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John talks about himself. He says, he leaned over and asked Jesus, hey, who are you talking about? Like, what's who is this that you're referring to? And Jesus says in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So from here, we know that Judas sold Jesus into the hands of authorities for about 30 pieces of silver. But I, I want to examine the nature of Judas's unbelief. Certainly, if you look at other parts of John, it would seem that all of the disciples believe. as they're, Like, they're the only ones who believe. Other people leave, they stick around, right? But Judas is holding out in terms of his belief. Why is he? And if he is, why in the world would he go with Jesus as long as he did? It is not a comfortable life, walking around for three years. Right? You, we, we've seen verses, uh, you know, foxes have dens and uh, animals have places to live. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. It is not a comfortable life that Judas has been living. And we see things about his greed and that kind of stuff, but we don't typically see greedy people willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that Judas has been making. So why would he go with Jesus as long as he did? Well, Judas thought that Jesus was going to change the world. He was Messiah. In, in Judas's mind, Jesus was Messiah. He had a powerful message. And in Judas's mind, Jesus would gather an army and remove Caesar's rule over Jerusalem. And Judas went with Jesus as one of the 12. Because you know what? If you're one of the 12 closest confidants to the guy who, who's about to be king, that means you have opportunity for a lot of power and a lot of prestige and a lot of authority. And in Judas's mind, he's a calculating guy. He says, yeah, I'll take three years with no place to live if it means I have a special place in the kingdom that he's about to set up. So on the other side of Judas's line was authority and position and power. From Judas's perspective, Jesus has been making a series of incredibly dumb decisions. Right? And as Judas watches Jesus, he said. Number one, he has not set himself up as king. He has not established any kind of protection or any kind of authority in, in the people who are around him. He has not gathered an army to himself. He has come into Jerusalem where now everybody wants him dead. Judas is like, I've been laying aside three years of my life and you're going to go kill yourself? Are you kidding me? Judas sees that Jesus is walking to his death. And he realizes, at least in his own calculations, that staying with Jesus will not give him authority or position or power. And when he realizes this, Satan enters him. And he betrays Jesus. So all over Judas, you have these false motives that, that apparently on the surface, it would seem that he believes in Jesus. But at the level of his heart, there is something else going on. And his story is a warning to those who seem to believe but are doing it to get something out of the process. This is a warning to prosperity preachers who say, believe Jesus and get rich. This is a warning to spiritual leaders who use the name of Jesus to carry out abuse. This is a warning to everyone who uses Jesus' influence for any kind of worldly gain. So Judas illustrates these questions of genuine belief for us. So we have one final illustration to look at. We have to look at the illustration of the disciples. Character number four, the disciples. The disciples were Jesus's most loyal followers. And while it seems they're all into following Jesus, like they're all in, they've given everything. 
in all of the gospels, we witness them along the way, kind of just not getting it. And like not getting better in their understanding, but actually increasingly understanding less and less and less as the story goes on. Right, so verse six, it says, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. That word understand is actually very important in the story of all the disciples. Verse 13, uh, verse 12, chapter 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Here's a hint, they don't, right? Verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Uh, How about verse 1 of chapter 14? Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, implying like you still have some work to do. You still have some believing that needs to occur. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus is like, are you kidding me, man? Like, I've been with you all this time. And so he, he just says, Thomas, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Like, I, it's me. It's all me right here. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. <laughs> I'm enough. It's me. I've been telling you the whole time over here, I'm enough. So let's, uh, they're not getting it, right? We, we get the point. Uh, let's talk about Mary again real quick. Because I think we see something really interesting about Mary that helps us understand what's going on with the disciples. Mary did not need to understand. She did not need to understand. She had seen everything she needed to see. And she was willing to say, yes, he's the Messiah. And yes, he's going to die. And I will gladly anoint him for this death that he's talking about. Why? Because he raised my brother from the dead. And I trust him to figure it out. I I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to understand the intricacies. I watched him raise my brother from the dead. That's enough. Everything I've got. If he says he's gonna die, okay. I'll anoint him for his death. I'll stand with him at the cross. That's not enough for the disciples, though. All of their not understanding leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, would you pray with me that you may not enter into temptation? Jesus is sweating drops of blood because of the urgency of the situation that he's in. Disciples take a nap. Why? They don't get it. They don't get it. And then he's arrested, and then what happens, of course, Peter denies knowing him, right, three times before the rooster crows. And after he's arrested and he ends up at the cross, nearly all of them abandon him. They do not go with him. 
They're afraid for their own lives, right? They don't want to get caught. So what was on the other side of their line? It needed to make sense to them. They were confused. And confusion breeds a weak faith. They needed to figure it out. They were, they, at least they very much, they were all in. They were all in for Jesus being the Messiah up to the point of his arrest and death when nothing made sense anymore. So they remained true and then they fell away until what? Well, there's that. Yeah, the, the one before that. Yeah, the resurrection. John 12, 16. And John has been, you know, kind of cluing us into this all the way through because he always writes these little notes that tell us, you know, about things that happen later on, but just helping us understand. John 12, verse 16, it says, his disciples did not understand. This is not the only time it has said this, by the way. This is just one of the examples. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning after he died and was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You know, the resurrection is an incredibly clarifying event. For John, as he examines the belief of the disciples, this is the comment that he gives most frequently. He says, they didn't get it until he was raised. And then it all clicked for them. Right? There's something to be said here. As we sort through the motives of our hearts, like, oh, sorry, after we sort through the motives of our hearts, after we consider whether we're willing to set what we think we know aside and adopt what he says is true, after we consider whether we're willing to love him more than we love the world, how do we know that he's trustworthy for giving up those things? How can we actually know that he's trustworthy, that he is worth giving up what's on the other side of the line in order to follow him? How do I know that I can trust him to be more right than me? How do I know that he's better than whatever I'm inclined to love? Why am I willing to examine myself constantly in my relationship to him? Well, number one, he loved me in his death better than anyone could ever be able to love me. And number two, that on its own is not enough. He also rose from the dead. Ain't nobody that's done that before. So what? So what? We have these different stories. Of course, the disciples, they come and they believe and everything's clarified for them after the resurrection. And, uh, and then at that point, they kind of just do whatever Jesus says. Like Jesus says, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go up to heaven. Uh, I need you to go wait for a while doesn't like who knows how long right uh and then the holy spirit's going to come upon you and then you'll go out and be my witnesses and you know what they do they just go and wait for it to happen <laughs> like they're just they're just praying and waiting patiently to see what's going to happen and then jesus delivers on what he promised to them because they had seen what they needed to see at that point we're gonna obey okay so what uh number one the process of believing is a heart exam it is not enough to agree that things about Jesus are true. It is not enough to have said or even prayed words stating that you believe he is Lord. Belief in and of itself is an act of repentance. 
It displays a willingness to say, I'm willing to set aside what I think I know and adopt what you tell me is true. I'm willing to sacrifice that which I'm inclined to love in love for you. I'm willing to give up whatever's on the other side of the line in order to serve and follow you. So in other words, it's, it's asking yourself this question. Am I willing to say, I will not let anything keep me from serving and following him above all else? Am I willing to say, I will not let anything keep me from serving and following him above all else? else. This is an examination of your willingness. It helps you to figure out what's going on in your heart. A couple of weeks ago, we had a funeral here. We had our sister Peg. She came up. She shared a little bit about uh, some interactions she had with Laura, a woman in our church who had passed away. But uh, she said this, and this is incredibly powerful, and uh, it's been coming back to me again and again. She talked about the distance between your head and your heart, and she said, don't let 18 inches keeping you from finding the Father in eternal life. Because that's the distance between your head and your heart. It's not enough to agree. You have to examine your heart. Surrender to him. So that's number one. Number two. This does not remove assurance. Right? Hear me on that. Failure to cross a line doesn't mean that you haven't crossed the line. Let me explain to you what I mean. What I am saying about being willing to be all in, right? To say, uh, okay, as far as I can tell, I am willing to give up whatever's on the other side of the line for the sake of following you, right? If that's where you're at, you're, you're willing to say that, let me tell you something. You are going to run into a line and you are going to get to that line and you're going to fail to cross it. Right? We are still going to fail to cross certain lines in our faith. We're, this, is like, this idea is not to suggest that we somehow obey perfectly after we believe. No, like, we never stop constantly being in need of his grace and forgiveness. So you may have failed or faltered in your faith at some point, but the invitation, even looking at the idea of a line, the invitation is that when we fail to cross the line, we have an invitation back to repent. To be examining ourselves. Right? And, and finding failure when we examine ourselves is not to have our souls in jeopardy. The question that we answer is, do I find myself now willing to repent? And rectify my failure. Yeah. Okay, so this is number two. Number three. As we invite people to belief, right? So this is not just about us, right? All the time. We're not just talking about, we're not, I'm not just trying to get information into you to shape and form how you think about faith. We recognize that all of us have responsibility for our spheres of influence. The people that we're, right? Because we're stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new. There are people around us that we want to invite to Jesus, And so as we invite people to belief, we are responsible to help them consider what they are surrendering. We have a role in the influence that we play to help them think about what's on the other side of the line for them. To help them think about what belief in Jesus might actually look like for them. 
right? So, so Jesus' statement to the Greeks, it made it so simple and clear. They didn't have context. They didn't have all the information. Jesus says, let me tell you what I mean for you. Verse 25, whoever loses his, loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will that servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Church, would you pray with me, please? Jesus, I thank you for this invitation that you have given us to not just accept the idea of belief at face value, to not accept the idea of belief as some kind of intellectual assent, but to see how it involves our hearts, how it involves our whole person. And Lord, I, I pray for those who are drawn into the invitation to consider our own lives, to examine our own lives. Lord, this is not a, a one-time thing that we're invited into. You invite us into it constantly to be examining ourselves and to freely return to you when we find that we have faltered in any way. To freely receive your forgiveness and grace. Lord, I, I pray for the fruit of faith in our lives and in the lives of those we are influencing. That you would enable us to be those who both understand what genuine faith looks like in our own lives and, and to also be those who help others understand what it looks like in their lives. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gifts that you have given us as we turn our attention to both celebrate and remember them. We ask that you would be shaping us and forming us into your image. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.